This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Turn with me in your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to talk to you about something that I'm, I'm sure will not be new for you. If you've been around here any period of time, you've heard us talk about this time and time and time again. But to be honest with you, what I want to talk to you about tonight, you can't hear too much. You just absolutely cannot hear too much because it is the foundation for everything that you need to know about healing belonging to us. We'll start in Isaiah 53. Isaiah is speaking hundreds of years before Jesus is sent to the earth, hundreds of years before Jesus ministers healing here on the earth, hundreds of years before he goes to the cross, and he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us what Jesus will do for mankind. Now, these uh, these scriptures uh, uh, obviously were written first to the Jews, but they don't just belong to the Jews. They belong to anybody that accepts Jesus as the Messiah. Everybody, no no Bible scholar with any kind of credibility whatsoever, will deny that Isaiah 53 is the single chapter that identifies the, the, the work of the Messiah more than any other place in the Bible. This is the gold standard, as far as the Jews were concerned, this is the gold standard chapter for what the Messiah would do. They still believe it. Those the Jews that don't accept Jesus as being the Messiah still are looking for the Messiah to come and do these things. That's just the way that it is. Everybody agrees, this is what the Messiah will do. Well, here's what Jesus did for us. We'll start reading in, um, well, let's just start in verse 1. It says, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now that, so often we start a little bit later in the chapter and, and we, we overlook this verse of scripture because it kind of starts off like, well, okay, uh, here's the information we're about to share. But folks, verse one is very important because believing the report is who the arm of the Lord is revealed to. The key is to believe what the, the things, the information that is about to be shared. If you want to realize or take advantage of the power of what Jesus did, you're going to have to believe the report. That's why Jesus talks so much to people in his earthly ministry. Of all the, the, the individual cases of healings that we have record of in Jesus' ministry, the vast majority of them, Jesus talked to people about what they believed. Because if he couldn't get them to believe the right thing, then with very few exceptions, he couldn't get the power of God to work for them. The Bible tells us in Nazareth, in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, talking about in his own hometown of Nazareth, it says, and there he couldn't do no mighty work. doesn't say that he wouldn't. He said he couldn't. Jesus, the Son of God, I know this blows religious people's minds, but the Bible says there was something that Jesus couldn't do. And what it says he couldn't do was he couldn't have any healing miracles in his hometown of Nazareth, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Their unbelief kept him from doing it. Now, if he hadn't wanted to do healing miracles in Nazareth, why did he go? In Nazareth, if you put Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6 together, it's talking about the same experience. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. He's there to heal. He says so. But the unbelief of the people kept that power from working. That's what's so, well, it's sad, really. That's what's so sad in the body of Christ now because you've got so much of the church praying, oh, God, please do something, and all they have to do is believe what the Bible says Jesus already did, and they could have it. But too many people shirk their own responsibilities and say, well, you know, God's uh, omnipotent. God is sovereign. God can do anything he wants to do. Well, yeah, he can. That's why he set it up for you to receive by faith. 
That was the sovereign move of God to establish the principle of receiving as faith. That means you can't have it your way. You can have it God's way by believing what the Bible says and taking advantage of it, but you can't have it your way. Well, I just believe, Pastor Mike, if God wants to heal me, he'll do it in his own sweet time. Most of those people die waiting for his own sweet time. And that's sad because that never was the plan or the purpose of the will of God. So who will believe our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, speaking of Jesus, shall grow up before him, God, as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's talking about Jesus as a sacrifice. It's not talking about Jesus as a human being. You know as well as I do that the Bible said that children came to Jesus and wanted him to bless them. How many preachers today do you know that kids want to be around? He couldn't have been some hard, you know, stone-faced like me. He couldn't have been anything like that. He had to be a real outgoing, friendly, you know, having a good time kind of guy, or otherwise kids wouldn't want to be around him. He had to have been one of the most accepting and, and, and outgoing and, and what other word do you use? That had to be who he was. So here where it says we didn't see anything that we desired of him, it means when he was on the cross, when he was being made sin. Before that, during Jesus' earthly ministry, everybody saw something in him they desired. So he says he has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him as a sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, pains, and acquainted with grief, sickness. The word translated sorrows is translated throughout the rest of the Old Testament pains in, in the majority of cases. And the word translated griefs is, is uh, uh, translated in most of the cases in the Old Testament as sickness. So it says he was a man acquainted with pains and sickness. Well, how was he acquainted with pains and sickness? A lot of times we can look at his earthly ministry and say, well, Jesus healed the sick. So, yeah, he was acquainted with sickness. But folks, remember, remember, it's not talking about while he was here on the earth. It's talking about while he was hanging on the cross. In other words, it's saying God connected Jesus with sickness and pains as our sacrifice. Do you understand that? It's telling us first and foremost, the first thing that says about Jesus, other than we didn't see anything that we desired of him, it tells us that Jesus was associated on the cross, he was associated with pains and sickness before it says a word about forgiveness of sins. Before it says one word about forgiveness of sins, the first thing it tells us about the Messiah, that all Bible scholars agree this is the Messianic chapter, the gold standard for the Messiah's work. First thing out of the gate, it says that his connection was with sickness and pains. Some people want to argue about whether or not Jesus did anything about sickness and pains. God seemed to think so because it's the Holy Ghost telling them ahead of time, hundreds of years before the fact, here's what it would be about. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, pains, and acquainted with grief or sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice verse 4, surely. Now, the reason verse 4 says surely, and it's the only time in the chapter that the word surely is used. The reason that the Holy Ghost said surely is because of the connection with pains and sicknesses in verse 3. It's the Holy Ghost saying, without a shadow of a doubt, this is the way it is. 
I don't care if your favorite preacher doesn't think so. Without a shadow of a doubt, this is the way it is. I don't care if the Baptists disagree. This is the way it is. I don't care if the Methodists throw up a stink about it. This is the way it is. I don't care if every denomination says otherwise. This is the way it is. That's what the Holy Ghost is telling us, folks. Surely. 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 You know what the word surely means? Surely. It means it's been done. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Again, this is the word griefs uh, for sickness and sorrows for pains. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Surely he has done it. Now, the thing that uh, the thing that most people don't recognize here are two other words in this verse, born and carried. You look in a concordance and look up these words and see where this uh, these Greek or these uh, excuse me these Hebrew words were used in other places, and you'll find that the vast majority of those places had to do with the Levitical law, had to do specifically with the Day of Atonement, and it had to do with the scapegoat. Now, before we go any further, let me explain a little bit about to uh, to you about the Day of Atonement. One time a year, one day a year, set time every year, same time, same place. The children of Israel were required to bring a sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem once it was built. At that time, the high priest would accept the sacrifice of the people. He would, uh, they would have to present a lamb or a goat or something like that, a young, you know, uh, lamb, animal without spot or blemish. And the the high priest or one of the other lesser priests, those that made up the priesthood, would kill this animal and splash the blood against the altar. Now, what that signified is that the individual had done their part to be forgiven from their sins for a one-year period of time. The reason it had to be every year at the same time was because it only lasted for one year at a time. But then at the end of the day or later in the day, the high priest would take one lamb that the high pri- that the, uh, the, the priest had set aside, prepared all year long for this sacrifice. Now, there were two animals that they kept up. Each year, it was a continuous thing, it, each year, uh, which, by the way, the the uh, uh, it, I hate to get into this. Let me just make a statement and and let if you want to study it out, you can. You know where the Bible says where Jesus was born uh, in uh, outside of Bethlehem. It said there were shepherds abiding in the field. Well, that's the wrong time of year for shepherds to be in the field. However, the priesthood who were responsible for raising the sacrificial lambs that were used on the Day of Atonement were the shepherds who were abiding in the fields. So when Jesus was born, where Jesus was born, and the angels that, the, that appeared to the shepherds and said, Behold, a child is born unto you in the city of David this day, and the angels, the choir, and all that stuff went on, he was, the, the, God was appearing by the angels, through the angels, sending a message to the shepherds who tended the sacrificial lambs, saying the real one is born. So they'd, they'd, they'd raise these animals. Because every year on the Day of Atonement, two animals would be chosen. Two animals would be examined by the priesthood. They would be taken, brought before the high priest, and the high priest would cast lots between the two. It was kind of like flipping a coin. Not exactly, but kind of the, the equivalent of picking a coin or flipping a coin. And one of these animals would be luckily chosen to be killed on behalf of the people so that his blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and offered there as a sacrifice for all of Israel for that one year period of time. The other one... The lucky one that got to live was called the scapegoat. And at that point in time, the high priest would lay his hands upon the scapegoat and he would pronounce every sin that he could possibly think of. And they had these big lists and all this kind of stuff that they'd go through. 
name every sin that was con- everything that was contrary to the law, everything that 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 was a part of the list, and so forth. Every sin that could possibly be committed that was the hands were laid on the head of this goat, the scapegoat, and these sins were pronounced upon the scapegoat. At that time, the scapegoat bore and carried representatively, symbolically, carried the sins of Israel away from the people. And it was, this goat was led out into the wilderness and then turned loose out there where either an animal would kill it or it die of starvation or something. The wrath of God would fall on this thing. The judgment of God would fall on this animal that represented the sins of Israel. And it would die out in the wilderness. So there were two things that were going on, not just the animal that was sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, but the animal that was the scapegoat. Now, the scapegoat language is born and carried when it comes to the sins of the people. So where it says, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains, it means Jesus was not only the lamb whose blood was offered, he was also the scapegoat that was taken into the wilderness, and there the judgment and the wrath of God fell upon him. Well, how did Jesus fulfill that? That's why Jesus had to go into hell for three days. That's the work of the scapegoat. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, the lamb that was slain for the uh, for the sins of the world when he was on the cross. He was a scapegoat in hell for three days. That's where he was and why he was uh, for those three days between the crucifixion and being raised from the dead. So again, verse 4, surely, without a shadow of a doubt, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We couldn't see what was going on. We, meaning the, the, the Isaiah speaking for Israel and any person that was standing by looking on what was going on, they could just see a man being crucified. But the three guys being crucified, they didn't see the difference in Jesus being crucified or either the two thieves on either side of him. They couldn't tell. So what did it look like to man? We see what it looked like from God's standpoint. We see what was going on from heaven's perspective. He was being associated with griefs and pains, or acquainted with them, connected to griefs and pains. Surely he was bearing as the scapegoat our griefs, our sicknesses, and our pains. But what did it look like to man? It just looked like from the guy standing there watching the crucifixion, wow, this is really something. He looks different than those two guys. There's a greater punishment coming on him for some reason, It's almost like God's doing this to him himself. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Join us Easter Sunday at Foothill Family Church. Come, be a part of our family, as Pastor Mike Webb will bring a message about the hope that Jesus can bring. Our vision is people growing in God and serving in His kingdom with a mission of showing God's love and a message of victory in Jesus Christ. Come join us this Easter as we serve God together. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. We'll have two services on Easter Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, that's sins. Now, folks, please understand, he's talked about sicknesses and pains in verses 3 and 4 before he ever says a word about sins. 
He makes two specific points, verses 3 and 4, about sicknesses and pains before a one word is ever said about sins. Yet what does the church emphasize? church emphasizes sins. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, if you're wondering what the difference is in transgressions and iniquities, they both mean sin. There's very little difference in the words themselves that are used. It means he was wounded for Adam's sins, and he was also wounded for the ones that you committed. See, if Jesus just paid the price for your sin, then then the sin that brought upon the curse on mankind would still be in effect for you. Because when Adam sinned, all of mankind sinned. The Bible tells us that very specifically in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Whereas by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So you would have been subject to the same sin, the same death through Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden. If Jesus just paid for your sins. Conversely, if he paid for Adam's sins but didn't pay for yours. If he was just wounded for your transgressions and wasn't bruised for your iniquities. That would mean that he's paid the price for Adam's sins but then you'd still be responsible for your own. So sin has to be paid for, folks. It's a law. It's the law of eternity. Sin has to be paid for. So you got Adam's sin that had to be paid for, and before you ever born, God knew that you were going to commit sin, so they had to be paid for too. So he had to pay the price for both of them. That's what it means. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Then it says the chastisement. word chastisement means punishment. The punishment of our peace was upon him. Now, the word peace is the word shalom. It means well-being in every area. Jesus took penalty, took the penalty or the price or the punishment for your well-being in every area. In other words, he paid for your well-being just as much as he paid for your sins. Now, this word shalom is translated in several places in the Old Testament, prosperity. And you cannot possibly, in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish understanding, you cannot possibly say something to someone. They use shalom as a, hi, you doing, uh, hello, and, and goodbye greeting. You can't possibly say shalom without understanding that you're pronouncing a material blessing upon them. Because if somebody is just healthy, but they're broke, that's not shalom. That's not peace. So in the Jewish mindset, their understanding and God's understanding when he inspired the Holy Ghost to tell these things to Isaiah and write them down is that the punishment upon Jesus was sufficient not just for sins, Adam's sin, not just for your individual sins, but also for your well-being in every area, including your material possessions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Now, some people will say, well, you know, that's just that's just being greedy. You know, those word of faith people, they're just greedy. That name it, claim it bunch, you know, they're just out there. My favorite uh, phrase that people used to use, you don't hear it too much now, treating God like a cosmic bellhop. Who in the world would think that up? Treating God like a cosmic bellhop where God is just required to go do whatever they say. Well, I hate to let you know, but before there was even such a thing as a bellhop, God said, I will deal with you according to the words that you speak in my ear. That's Numbers chapter 14, verse 28. But this idea that material possessions is not important. I grew up in this. Man, folks, that's a damnable doctrine. Because the concept 
was that God wanted you poor. Yeah, you're saved, but you're going to suffer in this life. And God doesn't really want you to have anything. Now, he wants you to have enough so you can come give the church the money that it needs. I mean, there was a big deal about tithes and offerings in the church I grew up in. But nobody really expects you to have anything left over after that. Why? And the thought that somebody could be rich and still serve God was contrary to everything that the denomination that I grew up in thought. I mean, that's the whole reason that the rich young ruler story was in there. Jesus found a rich man who said he loved God, so Jesus has to separate him from his stuff. That's what they taught us. And you couldn't be more wrong. You know why the guy was rich? Because he'd obeyed the law. When you do what the Bible says, you're blessed. Now, he did have a problem. The problem was he only had material possessions and he didn't have treasure in heaven, which means he wasn't the kind of giver that he was supposed to be. So what did Jesus do? Jesus told him to sell what he had and give so that he'd have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. I wonder what kind of blessing would have been attached to him if he had obeyed God and obeyed and, and followed Jesus. Well, he would have been poor like the rest of the disciples. Well, then why, when Jesus explains to the disciples that it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, why were the, the, the disciples astonished? Wouldn't that have been the place for them to pat themselves? I mean, they'd dislocate their shoulder trying to pat themselves on the back. Saying, well, yeah, he's supposed to be like us. It says they were astonished out of measure. And said, well, pfft, then who can be saved? They knew that the first promise that God made to Abraham was, I'll make you rich. You obey me. You follow me. You go where I tell you to go, and I'll make you rich. They knew that was the blessing of Abraham. So when Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven, easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, they said, huh? you got to be kidding. That's the, whole, that's the whole point of the promise and the covenant that God made with Abraham. Who then can be saved? Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's harder for a man to trust. It's hard for a man that trusts in his riches to enter into heaven. It's not a problem with having them. The problem is in trusting in them. And that's the reason why the man, the rich young ruler didn't have treasure in heaven to begin with. But folks, my whole point in this is to tell you Jesus paid the same price for your sins that he paid for your material well-being. Now, you want to make religious people mad? Go tell them that. But the Bible says so. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, our well-being was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And with his stripes, we are healed. And with his stripes, we are healed. You know, it's a funny thing. Because people will say, they'll twist this thing all around. They'll say, well, that we doesn't mean the church. That's not talking about the church. That means Israel. He's talking about, that's a, that's a promise to the Jews. Well, in the same we for transgressions and iniquities, the we that's used for healed? I mean, how are you going to say that transgressions and iniquities, the price that Jesus paid for our sins, is the same, or is for the church, but when he uses the same we for healing, that's not for the church. Folks, I'm convinced that the Holy Ghost knew everything that people were going to complain about down the road. 
I'm convinced that he knew every attack that, that folks would either devise on their own or be influenced of the devil to use. And the Holy Ghost just set things up in such a way that it makes people look stupid to say so. To make these kind of claims. If we means the church when he's talking about transgressions and iniquities, we has to mean the church when he's talking about being healed. Now he says, by his stripes, with his stripes, we are healed. The reason he says we are healed is because Isaiah is looking to the future. Isaiah is looking down the road in the future to when the Messiah would come and accomplish these things. But now look with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice it says in, um, in verse 24, Peter is referencing Isaiah. Now, Peter really doesn't quote much scripture in his letters. He does some, but not much. Paul does tons and tons more than Peter ever does. And the reason for that is because Paul was more learned in the Old Testament than Peter was. But everybody knew certain things. And Peter reveals the things that he knows in the letters that he writes. And here's one of the great things that all of Israel had to know about the Messiah. Now, not all of Israel accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But Peter, having accepted Jesus as the Messiah, knowing that he was raised from the dead, having been born again, now he knows that the gold standard Messiah chapter applies. And so that's one of the things that he refers to. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Peter says... Who, speaking of Jesus, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, that we being dead to sins, that we being dead to sins. When are we going to be dead to sins? We're already dead to sins. Please notice the tense that Peter is speaking. He's saying because he bore our sins in the tree, uh, in his own body on the tree, that we, in other words, now we are dead to sins. He's not talking about we're going to be dead to sins because Jesus did something good for us and now all God has to do is finish it. No, he's saying Jesus has already finished the work. He took our sins, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Therefore, we are dead to sins, period, already done. So Peter says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, already past tense, we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now, what I want you to see is, folks, Isaiah is standing hundreds of years before Jesus looking forward to the cross. He's looking forward to the event where the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, would be crucified. Peter is on the other side of the cross. Peter is standing here looking back to the crucifixion of Jesus, saying, by his stripes we were healed. Isaiah said, by his stripes, we are healed. In other words, when it takes place, when the event takes place, we will be healed. Just like when the event takes place, our sins will be forgiven. Just like when the event takes place, the chastisement of our peace will be upon him. Peter's looking backwards saying, because it's already happened, we're dead to sins now. Because it's already happened, by his stripes, we were healed. Everything we have as Christians came through the work of Jesus on the cross. And the work of Jesus was finished when he was raised from the dead. That means healing is just as much a finished work as salvation or the forgiveness of sins. All that's left for us to do is to receive it, and we do that by faith. Come join us at Foothill Family Church. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, 
we are healed. Join us Easter Sunday at Foothill Family Church. Come, be a part of our family, as Pastor Mike Webb will bring a message about the hope that Jesus can bring. Our vision is people growing in God and serving in His kingdom with a mission of showing God's love and a message of victory in Jesus Christ. Come join us this Easter as we serve God together. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. We'll have two services on Easter Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.